have a Bible this morning and you'll read with us, um, we're going to take a reading from the book of Numbers chapter 22. <clears throat> the book of Numbers chapter 22. And uh, before we look to the word, I'd like to just make one comment today. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, so when we, when we have service in, uh, in church, There is a, a natural view that we can have when we gather that um, when we come and we sit and we begin our song service, that our song service is lateral. We're just kind of singing out there. We're just throwing it out there. And then when the preaching begins, it's from this direction to that direction. And then when we pray, it's finally from this direction to that direction. Um, but I would like to propose a, an alternative view of what happens when we come into the house of the Lord. Um, when we come and we begin to sing, it's 
this direction, that direction. It's, it's worship. And I couldn't help but notice in the last song um, that we sung, I requested that Sister Ashley sing it. <clears throat> and uh, it's developing into one of my favorite songs because it's a song that talks to the Lord from us. And that's what I love about it, is it's this continuous request as to what we would like God to do to us while we are here. And so you may not like the tune of it and that you don't know it. I'm not going to read it all, but I want you to listen to this song and think about when we sing it, where you're directing it. Because for a moment, if you pause and you'll not just think about the, the, the tune and, and not just think about projecting with your voice, but what you'll think about it is the same way that the Psalms were written. And that is a blend of a song and a prayer. Speak, O oh Lord. Isn't that a wonderful request that we could ask of God? While we're gathered here, speak, Lord. As we come to you to receive the food of your holy word. That's why we've gathered. Is that we've gathered together. That we might worship. And in the midst of our worship, that we might lift up a plea. And that is, Lord, give us our daily bread. Give us that food from your word that we could be strengthened in those things that we're commissioned to do. Take your truth, plant it deep in us. Shape and fashion us in your likeness. Why do we want that? Well, that's what the next part says. That the light of Christ might be seen today in our acts of love and our deeds of faith. Speak, O Lord, and fulfill in us all your purposes for your glory. The song goes on and on, and it is just this constant request of the Lord that while we're here, He would speak to us and change us and fashion us and suit us. And so... I love to imagine our gatherings here as we start in worship. And our hearts and our minds are lifted up. And that's a, it's not a passive thing you can do. It's active. You have to determine in our song service that you are going to worship. And that your words, when you're thinking about the words that you're singing, you're saying them purposely to the Lord to worship Him. It's as though he is right in front of you and you're singing this beautiful melody to him. And then, as we gather, that you would pray for me. That then, God would respond to our worship by honoring our request in this song. And that is, Lord, that you would speak to us. And then when that whole dynamic has finished... We come for a benediction. You know what that benediction would be like? Thank you for what has transpired today. 
Thank you that we were given the gift to worship today, that we were permitted to utter your name and to lift you up, that we did it with diligence and purposefulness and mindfulness, and that God, as a response, you graciously spoke to us. And we heard life-changing truth, and we prayed as it was spoken, Lord, do that to me. Give me courage, give me faith, give me grace to act upon those things which have been laid before me today. And then we step out. And since that was such a deep, meaningful interaction, the residue of it is carried with us as we leave. We don't quickly forget it. If you're involved in a, this week in an intense conversation where there is meaningful things going back and forth, you don't forget it the moment you leave. You can't help but the way it has affected your mind. Unbidden, it comes to you because the conversation was so deep and meaningful. And it either causes you to tremble and, and, and be anxious or it causes you to be lifted up and encouraged about the relationship. But either way, you walk away And you can't forget it. In one sense, that is what our gathering here is meant to do every week. To have such a deep interaction with God in those ways. In every form of service. I'll say this before I begin our message today. Every act of our service that we have together ought to be intentionally done by your heart and mind. There ought to be no part where it's just casual because God is our audience. One of my favorite things to hear is people who can't sing, sing. Because here's what it tells me. In no area of life am I going to extend myself except in my worship of God. Then I will step out of my comfort zone because... He is worthy of it. And because in heaven, do you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to sing. You might not sing here, but why don't you practice down here? Why don't you practice a heart of worship being lifted up to him? This morning, I'm grateful for the songs that we sung today. Um, We're going to take a reading this morning from the book of Numbers, chapter 22. We're going to read the first 19 verses. You'll probably recognize uh, the name of the person and probably the story related to him in the second half of this chapter. And we're not going to deal with that half of the chapter directly, uh, but we will uh, read the first 19 verses. Uh, thank you, Charlie. <clears throat> Numbers 22 says this. And the children of Israel set forward and pitched in the plains of Moab on this side of Jordan by Jericho. And Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. And Moab was so afraid of the people because they were many. And Moab was distressed because of the children of Israel. And Moab said unto the elders of Midian, Now shall this company lick up all that are round about us, as the ox licketh up the grass of the field. And Balak the son of Zippor was king of the Moabites at that time. He sent messengers therefore unto Balaam, the son of Beor to Pethor, which is by the river the land of the children of his people, to call him, saying, Behold, there is a people come out from Egypt. Behold, they cover the face of the earth, and they abide over against me. Come now, therefore, I pray thee, curse me, this people, for they are too mighty for me. Peradventure I shall prevail, that we may smite them, and that I may drive them out of the land, for I wot 
For I wot that he whom thou blessed is blessed, and he whom thou cursed is cursed. And the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the rewards of divination in their hand. And they came unto Balaam and spake unto him with the words of Balak. And he said unto them, Lodge here this night, and I will bring you word again as the Lord shall speak unto me. And the princes of Moab abode with Balaam. And God came unto Balaam and said, What men are these with thee? And Balaam said unto God, Balak the son of Zippor, king of Moab, has sent unto me, saying, Behold, there is a people come out of Egypt which covereth the face of the earth. Come now, curse them. Peradventure I shall be able to overcome them and drive them out. And God had said unto Balaam, Thou shalt not go with them. Thou shalt not curse this people, for they are blessed. And Balaam rose up in the morning and said unto the prince of Balak, Get, get you into your land, for the Lord refuseth to give me leave to go with you. And the princes of Moab rose up, and they went unto Balak and said, Balaam refuseth to come with us. And Balak sent yet again princes more and more honorable than they. And they came to Balaam and said to him, Thus saith Balak the son of Zippor, Let nothing, I pray thee, hinder thee from coming unto me. For I will promote thee unto very great honor, and I will do whatsoever thou sayest unto me. Come therefore, I pray thee, curse me this people. And Balaam answered and said unto the servants of Balak, If Balak would give me his house full of silver and gold, I cannot go beyond the word of the Lord my God to do less or more. Now therefore, I pray you, tarry ye also here this night, that I may know what the Lord will say unto me more. I'll conclude our reading uh, this morning. That's reading Numbers 22, 1 through 19. And as many of you know, the majority of you know, we've been preaching on some silent sins. Uh, titled our message, I guess, series, Six Silent Sins. And now we're on number six. And so um, the title of our message today is Straddling the Fence of Obedience. Straddling the Fence of of obedience. Now, in these number of sermons, which I did not intend to express in the fashion that I have, but I'll trust that the Lord was leading me in those things. Um, we've talked about a lot of hard things. We called it six silent sins. For a number of reasons. One, because very often people don't talk about these sins. Or because they're hidden sins. And if you haven't been here for these, and even if you have, I want to remind you of what those were. I wrote them down here. Sexual impropriety was one. Addiction and self-control. Inaction. Unbiblical divorce. Faithless praying. And now this final one is straddling the fence of obedience. Straddling the fence of obedience. Balaam, if you read this account from chapter 22 through chapter 25, you would not naturally develop a negative attitude towards him. Because there are a number of things that he says that are very right. One of them, we read to you, that he responds to Balak, if you were to give me a house full of gold and silver, I will not speak beyond the prophecy God gives me. And so that gives the impression, if you read his words, and you don't listen to his actions, 
or watch his actions, that he wasn't a bad guy. That he did have boundaries and limits. And there are a number of times where that exact phrase through these next three chapters are verbatim repeated to the king of Moab. So just to make sure that you understand what's going on in this narrative here, the children of Israel have been delivered from Egyptian bondage. They're coming towards the promised land. God has instructed them actually to go and conquer the promised land. They refuse to do so in their disobedience and their faithlessness. And now they're wandering aimlessly in the wilderness. And other nations they're fighting with, they had just fought the Amorites. And now the Moabite king sees them. He's smaller than what they are in number. And he's afraid of them. And so he wants to go and drive them off of his land. But before he does, he wants a prophet to curse them. That he might have the freedom in his, from his perception, that he might have the freedom to go and that it will actually be successful. And so he calls Balaam, he sends messengers to Balaam, and they bring the messengers a whole bunch of money. That's what it said in verse 7. Very passive. It says, And the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the rewards of divination in their hand. Divination's like soothsaying, witchcraft. So they came with whatever the normal amount that you would pay somebody to perform a curse, they're coming with that money in their hands that he might do that. And so Balaam receives these messengers and he says, well, you all stay the night here, I'll go and pray. And so in verse 12, he goes and he prays and I want you to notice how succinct that God's response to Balaam is. I mean, there's no emotion in it. There's no, here's why you're doing this. There's no flowery long speech. It's just two very short sentences. Thou shall not go with them. Thou shall not curse this people because they are blessed. That's it. Don't do this. Now, I want to use that verse 12 to talk for a moment just about some of the things that we've talked about over the last number of weeks. Many of these things that we have brought before you have been clearly demonstrated in God's word to be wrong. And in a world that wants to see gray, there are many things in God's word that are absolutely black and white. And that is not a form of God's malevolence towards us. It's actually a form of God's mercy. Giving us clear boundaries, direction, and clarity about the way we need to live our lives. The attitudes that need to be present within us. The relationships that we need to have. That whenever God sets a hard boundary, it is always for our good. Otherwise, we would be flailing in darkness, wandering if we're appeasing the God that we serve. 
And that's so often what in the years past, whenever the pagans had their gods, they would go and they would flail and they would wander and they would try to give money randomly to these various gods. And they would look around and they would say, well, it's not raining today. Maybe we're really messing up. And they flailed and they flailed. And that's the beauty of God's word is that people have looked at and they've said, you know, it's a horrible thing. It tells us we can't have fun. I beg to differ. It gives us such clarity as how we need to interact with one another and in all the variety of uh, complicated situations that we're going to find ourselves in. God gives us clarity. And he says, this is the path that is right. This is the path that is most beneficial for your welfare. Oh, and he gets very intricate. And the more detailed he gets, the more appreciative I get that he's that detailed. Because it helps me to understand and to comprehend what I need to do in these variety of situations that we're in. God's word is a huge blessing. You know, one of the things that you'll read in Jesus' words is Jesus speaks in absolutes. And that's very interesting. If you read, if you, next time you read Jesus, just notice the absolutes that he speaks in. He says, it is this way. He doesn't say, if all the time this happens and this happens. He speaks in clarity and absolutes. Because he's God and he knows the truth and he's the author of truth. And that provides us such comfort, but it also is uneasy for people who are sinful. Because if you're desiring to behave in a way, if you're desiring to walk a path and live in a way that's not in accordance with God's word, or is just beyond the boundaries of what God permits and allows for us, then bringing obscurity to God's word is a good thing. I'm not saying it's a good thing. I'm saying you would think it's a good thing. Because then it permits you, without conflict and conscience, to just continue down this path of disobedience, obscured by the fact that there's no truth about this subject. So let me tell you this about your private Bible studies. If you're never, ever, ever coming to conclusions about what God says, it might be because you want to resist the hard boundaries God draws because you're living in sin. If you just write off a subject and you say, you know what, that's just too complicated. I'm not going to go there. And yet that subject is one that is deeply personal and impactful. Maybe it's to escape sin. See, many of these things we've talked about, God gives us clarity, sexual impropriety. God's word is very clear about it. There's not a lot of gray. Sex is designed for marriage. And it is meant to be enjoyed within those boundaries. It is not meant to be withholden in those boundaries. And that is the short synopsis of what God's word says about it. And so everything else that is a moving part that Satan uses to try to obscure it. It's not true. And what our desire ought to be is to do whatever we can to come into conformity with that teaching. Addiction. Being dependent and addicted to anything is sin. Anything. 
And very often the most deceptive addictions are those which are good on the surface and in moderation. But when abused, seize our hearts and control our lives as a result. So food is dangerous when it's ingested in excess. Screens are dangerous when we've convinced ourselves that our lives cannot do without them for just a couple of hours or a day. Whatever thing God's word is not obscure, but it's clear. And praise God for clarity in that. That I can know how I ought to strive to live my life. And what I know what to pray for that God would grace me with. Because listen, this morning I may be up here declaring this. But in private I'm very aware of my need for God's grace to obey those lofty things which I proclaim before you. In action. Here. It's easy to have a rah-rah speech about how we need to go out and we all feel motivated and encouraged. But you all know that the battle, whenever it's its hardest and you're exhausted and your mind is numb and your spirit is feeling sinful towards other people for the way they treat you, that continuing to act out those things God has commanded is a lot easier said than it is done. And yet, just because I say all of that does not mean it is any less necessary that we do what God has compelled us to. You see the obscurity? You see how there can be such a, yeah, but it's really hard and you don't know the situation and, and we can add all of these late, all these things that just cause us to do nothing. Just obscure what God has, but when God said it, he knew all of those things. And so when he told us to love our neighbor, when he told us to wash one another's feet in service to one another, God knew there would be people in your fellowship that backstab and gossip. God knew that. And you know what he did anyway? He said, serve them. God knew that. Do you see how Satan just tries to obscure all the lines? I love what God speaks to Balaam. Don't go with them. And don't curse those people. It would be a wonderful thing if that's where the story ended, but it has to extend for three more chapters. Why? Because Balaam wants to just straddle the fence. You see, we learn in the New Testament, and if you want to turn there and read with me, I'll show you. There's three occurrences where Balaam, this obscure prophet that's found in three chapters in the Old Testament, is talked about. And in two of those chapters, the exact same thing is mentioned to him about him. And in the third one, something very akin to those first two are mentioned. So let's look at this account. Second Peter chapter 2, look at verse 15. What 
Peter is describing is he's saying in the last days, there are going to be people who come that are deceptive and they're going to creep in among you and they're false prophets. And now he's saying, here's how you identify the false prophets. And he gives this long multi-chapter explanation as to how you identify a false prophet. Now, not so ironically in the letter that we're going to read here in a moment, the book of Jude, that's exactly what's going on. He has told them that I told you to earnestly contend for the faith, but there are going to come some that come in among you and they're going to try to deceive. And now he's describing in both of these occurrences what those deceivers will act like. And so both the author of Jude and Peter take this Old Testament prophet, this obscure, hardly no-name guy, and bring him in as a brief example of what these deceivers will be like. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 15. He's talking about these men who are deceivers. Which have forsaken the right way and are gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Besor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but was rebuked for his iniquity. The dumb ass speaking with man's voice forbade the madness of the prophet. So notice what he says here. He loved the wages of unrighteousness. So let's put that within the context of what we're talking about this morning. Why do people straddle the fence of obedience to God? Because there is a payment for unrighteousness. There's a pleasure, there's a benefit on both sides to straddling the fence. Balaam would not come out and explicitly do what Balak asked. And if you keep reading these next three chapters, here's what Balak, the prophet, does. He takes him to this place. He says, I want you to curse these people. He prays about it. God says, no. Then Balaam gets back up. He tells, I can't do it. So then what Balak does is he sends more honorable men to come to him. That he might entice him even more. And Balaam says, no. But... I'll stay with you and see what God says about it if he changes his mind. I'll stay associated with you. I'll leave the door open to what you're saying. And maybe it'll happen. So then what Balaam does, or Balak does, he said, well, let's leave this location and go to a different mountain. We'll, we'll set up seven altars. We'll sacrifice some lambs. And then you pray, or some oxen, and then we'll pray. See if God changes his mind. You can curse him there. And so Balaam does his thing then. He goes up and he prays. And God says, no. And God's anger is kindled against him that he's even walking around with them. Now notice, in the part that God spoke to him originally, he said, don't go with those people and don't curse the Israelites. Well, in those two things, it would seem to the human mind like the greater form of disobedience is cursing the Israelites. And so, Balaam doesn't do the worst sin. But he does the first sin. Because the mind tells you, well, if I'm not going to do what they say, what's the problem with just associating with them and walking around with them? I'm not going to go and do what God doesn't want me to do. It's the same thing that a young person says in a college party. Well, I'm going to go, but I'm not going to drink. I'm going to pursue career, but I'll still go to church. I'm going to pursue the world. But I'm still going to be moral and nice and kind. 
What if God has said, no? No. Don't marry that person. I know the future. I know the condition of their heart. You think you do, but I'm God. I created them. Well, I'll marry them, but we'll always, we'll make an agreement before we get married that this is our church and our kids are going to come here. Isn't that what straddling the fence is all about? Is getting the wage of unrighteousness, but not explicitly disobeying God? Second Peter says that. Now let's look at the book of Jude. I can find it here. I guess it's right before Revelation. I shouldn't have a problem finding it. The book of Jude says this in chapter 1, of course, verse 11. It says, Woe unto them. Now, it's interesting because in this verse, this, he's, he's pointing out three qualities of these people by giving a comparison to somebody else in the Old Testament. So it's really quick. And he's pointing out three different qualities of these men, or of th- these deceivers, based on three Old Testament examples really quick. So I think what he's doing here is what you would commonly do if you were describing someone to someone that didn't know that person. That each of us perhaps becomes a symbol of a certain quality. For example, somebody I know just passed away this week. And he was an encourager. And so if I was describing someone else to a friend, I would say, you know, he's like Brother Nathan in the way he encourages. Right? That's how I would describe it. So that's what he's doing here is he's using these people because they have become archetypes of these values or virtues or lack thereof. And so here's what he says. Woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain. And ran greedily after the heir of Balaam for reward. So now Balaam is this picture of someone who straddles the fence because they continuously want the wages of unrighteousness. You know, the more I read those three chapters in in the book of Numbers, every time whenever the king Balak would rebuke Balaam and say, Hey, I told you to curse them and now you won't do that and you're blessing them? And then Balaam would give the response, if you gave me houses full of silver and gold. The more I've read that, the more I've wondered if that wasn't Balaam trying to seduce the king of Balak to just keep giving him more. Well, if you were to give me all this gold and silver, I still wouldn't be able to do it. So what does Balak do? Just go get more gold and silver and bring it to him. I don't know that that was the case, but it seems insinuated by the New Testament references to him that what he wanted was the wages of unrighteousness. So here's what we'll say. When you live outside of the boundaries of sexual propriety, there are wages of unrighteousness that you'll enjoy. There are. There is temporary pleasure that you'll enjoy. Addictions to things. The reason why we get addicted to things is because of the pleasure. But know that those are the wages of unrighteousness. In action. Apathy feels good to the flesh. Comfort feels good to the flesh. But it's corrosive to the spirit. It's malignant to our spiritual lives. But it does feel good for a moment. Giving up on a relationship through an unbiblically sanctioned divorce 
gives immediate relief for all the things that might have to be undone or all the all of the um, the knot that has to be slowly one by one peeled back all the pain and concessions of sin that maybe you've contributed to the relationship have to be slowly and painfully taken back and forgiveness has to be extended and you know for all the talk of forgiveness in the scriptures and it's very true there is a pain to forgiveness that you experience because there's some sinful pleasure within us that wants to see people get what's coming to them. And forgiveness denies us that pleasure. I'm not going to wait until they experience pain and the just recompense for what they've done. I'm going to forgive and restore and turn the other cheek and embrace and love my enemy. And to the flesh that doesn't feel good. No, the wages of unrighteousness are when we sit back and we say, yes, they got what they deserved. And that, I hate that moment of pleasure when I think of it spiritually. And there have been times where I have reveled and caught myself reveling in that person's pain and thought, how horrible, how unchristlike for me to take joy and satisfaction. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. That's not my prerogative. That's God's. And praise God that I'm not always dished out what I deserve and what I'm owed. Here, Balaam is this example of straddling the fence. So let me just put it to you as straight as I know how. In what areas are you straddling the fence of obedience? Like, this isn't a sermon point. This is a real question. In what areas... Are you straddling the fence of obedience? Were you since God inclining you towards something? And you just don't. You just won't. You just won't do it. Well, let's be very clear about God's view of that. Any time that he brings up the name Balaam from this point on, it is never in a positive situation. It is always as an example of greed. Or we go to the book of Revelation. You can look, I believe it's the second or third chapter where he references Balaam for the last time. And we read of what Balaam did for Balak. You know, in Jesus' teaching, he, he brings out this point by teaching us, you know, you cannot serve God and money. God and mammon is what it says in the King James. So you can't serve both of those. He, another case, he says, you're either with me or you're against me. I'm not going to let you straddle the fence here. So, one of the bad parts of straddling the fence is as people on each side begin to pressure you, it finally comes to a head. And you've got to pick a side. So let me just go ahead and say this. Eventually, if you're straddling the fence of obedience, God and that other sin is going to put you in a place where you have to choose where you can't straddle anymore. And so the New Testament tells us, the book of Revelation tells us what Balaam did. He said, I will not curse the Moabites, but I'll tell you how to beat them yourself. 
And so you go read Numbers 25, and you put that together with Revelation chapter 2, and here's what he told him. I can get their God to destroy them for you. You don't have to fight them. Their God will destroy them. You just go in and send your young ladies in there and have them marry the young men of Israel. And then what will happen is those young men, when they're beginning families, which is very common even today, is which God are you going to serve? Well, the God of the wife is what most often gets served. Because women tend to be more religious, tend to be more prone that direction. And so then what happened was the Israelite men began to serve at the altar of Baal. And then what did God do? Well, the Moabites didn't have to lift a sword. God destroyed them for them. Do you see how, here's my point in bringing this up. Do you see how he straddled the fence and he straddled the fence and he straddled the fence, but then in the very end, he compromised, told the Moabites how to destroy the Israelites and did something worse than if he had just cursed them at the very beginning. This morning, we've talked for weeks about sin, about various parts of it. And I suppose today, if you're somebody who is living in a silent sin, and you're just continuing to do that, recognize this. When you straddle the fence, it's going to lead you to the same place than if you had just committed the sin openly to begin with. And that is this. God will remove himself from you. The greatest consequence to sin is not the natural consequences that are sowed on earth. It is the consequences upon our relationship with God. When, especially of a silent nature, because layered on top of that silent nature is a form of hypocrisy. And God resists the proud. And He gives grace to people who are humble. God honors people. I think, my opinion here, know that. I think confession in a collective sense can be a very good thing. I know that there's a lot of intricacies to that statement. I'm not going to get on into all of them. But I think at its core at times, what it does is it gets us to the most humble place that we can possibly get. And that is that people see in us what God sees all the time. It brings to our reality just how real and offensive our sin is. Because think of it like this. If I, have a silent, if I keep something secret and I'm sinning, I don't let anybody know about it. I conceal it. But God sees it just as though it's out in the open. Just as clear to Him. And all we're trying to do, all I'm trying to do is i, I got to keep it hidden. Because if I don't, what will these people think of me? How will these people treat me? What will my reputation become within this circle of people? And so I strive and I strive. And then finally, word gets out. God reveals it. And I am crushed, absolutely crushed over it. So ashamed. I don't want to see people anymore. Don't you realize that that last state is the way your first state ought to bend before the eyes of God? But not only are you concealing the sin, 
You're concealing the real vileness of it to yourself and God. I'm not saying it necessarily takes you coming in here on a Sunday morning and blurting it out. But there are times when I have seen people freed from saying, you don't know how much pride I have on the inside, but I feel like I need to tell you. And suddenly that creates in them a natural, humble disposition. Because they know, my secret's out. I can't hide anymore. I have an addiction, and here's what it is, and I'm ashamed even to say it. But here's what it is. And now that walking uprightly pompous attitude is shattered. Where it ought to have been all along before God. If we really understood sin and its consequence on our relationship with God, we'd have been shattered to begin with. Balaam straddled the fence. Here's the last thing that I'll say and I'll be done. To me, here's the most damaging thing about hidden sin. The what ifs. The what ifs. And here's what I mean. So if I commit sin, we might see consequences. Like you might be able to see A happened, B was the result. But what if we did what God instructed instead of the sin being there in its place in my life and in my attitude existed righteousness? So instead of a weed or a tear falling to the ground, a weed growing and choking out the things around it, what if in place of that tear, a seed of righteousness was planted? And it grew. And for some it produced 30-fold and some 60-fold and some 100-fold. And then those people who gained nourishment from that righteousness went and planted their own seeds of righteousness. And they grew. And they bore 30 and 60 and 100-fold. There's a never-ending sense of possibilities as to what God can do with the wages of righteousness versus the wages of unrighteousness. And yet we can never know. Who would ever know what would happen to the visitors that walk in our door if when they walked in, when we sang, we worshipped? What would happen? We don't know, do we? Like if our hearts were fully set on God as we sang, and we did what David did before he walked into the temple with the ark, we did it with all of our might. And then that lowly visitor from the community walks in, searching, looking, doubting belief in God. And man, we start our service and they see us worshiping to God. I would rather put that in the hands of the Lord, then how good your preacher is and whether they'll come back because they want to hear him again. How nice we were. How inviting we were. Now, people who are serious about God, they want to see people who are serious about God. They want to see something real and meaningful in its place. There would be fruit. What about when you feel 
compelled to speak here in service. So what, what does it usually result in? Well, we got, I'm nervous, right? Like that's one of the things that happens is you get real nervous. And the second thing Satan says, well, you've said that before. You get up and you blabber about the same thing before. Maybe some of you that are resistant to cry, you know, I just cry, I can't finish it. Well, maybe that's what I need is not your words, but the sign that you care. And that's what's needed. Is that these young kids around here, yeah, you might get up all stoically and talk. And they'll keep on playing with their little toys. But you get up and you fall apart and you wilt. You know what they do? Trust me, I know, I watch them. They stop. They look, and they listen. And if they conclude one thing in their innocent little minds is, wow, he really cares. He really loves the Lord. And they go back their merry way playing. What about that, that person that needs visited and called? Well, you didn't say anything wrong to him. That's right. How much different would their life be not being lonely? Straddling the fence of obedience. It has a cost. And it's real. My prayer is that God would help us. And I I don't even know what to pray for necessarily. You know? Like I don't know what to pray. Because we're all in different places. Why do I straddle the fence? Different reasons, different circumstances. I don't know. It's all different. But I know that I do. And in part because I'm afraid of you. In part. What if I just abandoned that? What if Balaam had a very short conversation with Balak and said, No! I'm out of here. Those are God's people. He doesn't want them cursed. And then he did what the scriptures command to sin. He ran the opposite direction. Maybe the millions of people that have read his name and his situation since then would have said, Be like Balaam. But unfortunately, we can't. This morning, I pray, I hope, that these thoughts have been beneficial to you both this morning and these last few weeks. Some of these things have been deeply in my heart. And ultimately, I want us to be more righteous and holy so that God will be with us. If there are things hidden, know that there is a cost, both to you and to us, to all those you're associated with. And the best thing to do is get those out before the Lord, repent of your sin, and make things right. And then, live a life that is different, changed. There's power in a transformed life. There's power in it. Satan says there's shame in it. There's power in it. It's effective. That's our message this morning. I hope that God would use it to help someone today. I hope you know that's always my intent.